0: To Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. You can actually open to 1 Kings as well. We're going to get to 1 Kings in a few minutes. So, Matthew 13 and 1 Kings. Before we go any further, though, there's something I haven't done yet. I want to pray for every Sunday we take a minute to pray for another church in our community to be a blessing to the body of Christ. This morning I want to pray for Cornerstone Bible Church right over in Glendora on Glendora Avenue. Beautiful brick or rock building right on the corner. Pastor Bruce French is the lead pastor uh, of that congregation. Could we take a minute to pray for them this morning? There, what we do is we extend our hands in a sign of blessing towards them, and, and they're kind of right behind you. So you got to actually rotate a little bit. Don't hit the person behind you in the head. Just kind of turn, and we're going to pray blessing. Father God, we thank you for Cornerstone Bible Church and for the rich history and heritage they have in the city of Glendora. And God, we ask this morning. Uh, increase upon that congregation, Lord. I know they're raising uh, raising finances and funds, Lord, to, to do some improvements to their building, Lord. I pray that you would release that financial blessing upon them. God, thank you for the discipleship that's taking place, Lord. I thank you for the ministry to the young adults with Pastor Mike, who's on their staff, Father God, and the work that you're doing through that. And God, we just ask that you would just bring greater blessing, Lord. I pray that the, the latter days, these next days ahead, would be uh, so much greater than anything they've experienced in the, in the past, Father God. Thank you that we get to partner with a, a congregation, Lord, who loves you, who loves your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. By the way, if you uh, have not been baptized, if you've maybe known the Lord, Lord for a while, maybe you've recently come to, to know the Lord, if you've not been baptized in water, next Sunday is your opportunity Um, And we'd love to partner with you in that. Um, You can sign up for that at the hub or online at at, uh, ThriveGlendora.org. There's a form you can fill out there. But please do that as soon as possible if you'd like to be baptized so we can be prepared for you. Well, we're in week five and the last Sunday of a series entitled Rooted and Established. Rooted and Established. I'm going to jump right into Ephesians 3, which has been our anchor passage for this series. Ephesians 3, 14 says this, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We've taken time over these last few weeks to talk about this passage and to unpack some different aspects of what Paul is saying here. We've, we've talked about the, the, the fact that the seed is always good. The seed is always good. God's Word is always, always good. We discussed in the first couple of weeks the, the, the fact that the condition of the soil uh, of our lives will affect our fruitfulness. The condition of the soil of your life, will affect your ability to produce fruit in the kingdom of God and to the glory of God. We talked about guarding our hearts and our minds against wrong teaching, that when we're rooted and established, that, that when funky teaching comes in, when teaching that doesn't align with the word of God comes along, we won't be swayed or we won't be moved or convinced or, 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 of something that's not truth. We talked about, remember, the hurricane straps that hold us in place in the same way that Hurricane Strap holds a, a house in place when the winds come, that, that, that when we're rooted and established in love and in God's word, that we won't fall prey to weird and funky teaching. Can, believe me, I come across stuff. I have people that send me letters saying, hey, I want to come preach in your church. And I read the letter and I'm like, oh my goodness. Like half of what I'm reading here isn't even in the Bible. It's just your idea. I'm able to stand and say, no, first of all, I don't believe that because I know God's word doesn't say, and I'm definitely not going to subject our congregation to that. Why? Because there's hurricane straps in place that keep us from being deceived. And then last week talked about the fact that we're built to weather storms. God has built us and rooted us and established us in such a way that when the storms of life come, as we read in Romans chapter 5, when opposition comes that we can stand firm because we're anchored to Him. We're anchored in Him. We talked about that motor lifeboat the Coast Guard uses that can right itself. It can capsize and it'll pop back up every time within 10 seconds and how that the guy that's piloting that, that boat who's on the outside of the vessel is strapped in so that he won't get thrown off. But man, when you're upside down and your head's under the waves, how oh, he's counting, right? One, two, because I know 10 seconds, 10 seconds, that we are built to weather storms because we are anchored to Jesus Christ and that we will always, he will always cause things To work together, as Romans chapter 8 says, for his glory and for your good. This series, Rooted and Established, is not just a series for us, but it's our theme for this entire year. And it's something we're going to explore as a church. We'll keep referencing back to this as we talk more about uh, what discipleship looks like at Thrive Church and and how we engage in discipleship. We'll keep referencing back to Rooted and Established. And and the real key here is that it's tied to our vision. That all of the things that we're talking about and that I'm sharing from God's word are are tied to our vision and our name and who we are and what God is doing in our church. Our vision being this, we exist to help people thrive in Christ. Helping people thrive in Christ. I, I have become so passionate about this I have meetings all throughout the week. I talk with people. We, we'll have you know, meeting over a cup of coffee or, or, or a phone call. And I'm always just thinking in the, in the back of my mind, how can I help this person thrive in Christ? Whether they're a leader who's just hitting it out of the park and doing well, whether it's someone who's struggling or discouraged, and everything in between, people caught up in sin, people excited for the future but trying to figure out the next steps, and everything in between, in the back of my mind, just always thinking, how can I help this person thrive in Christ? And you can do the same. You know why? Because Jesus is, Jesus is calling them to thrive and wants to use your life to help them get there. John 10.10 10 says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. To the absolute fullest. You know, there's a lot of death and destruction in the world around us. There's a lot. God says, I want to use your life to shine the light of hope and life and a full life in Christ. That's what we're all about. I want to speak this morning, though, on in this final Sunday... On Not Despising Small Beginnings. The title of my message is, Don't Despise Small Beginnings. Don't Despise Small Beginnings. In 1890, there was a man that was born, his name was Harland. And he uh, he's an interesting guy. He served in the military. He held a number of different kinds of jobs. In fact, a lot of jobs, and some of them just didn't go well. Anyone had a job that just didn't go well, ever? Yeah, a few of us, right? You're like, I thought that was gonna go a little different. Uh, He was an attorney. He was a fireman. He was a gas station owner. He owned and operated a ferry boat. He tried to. uh, He bought into buying a a company that would produce gas lamps. Right at the time that uh, the electric light bulb came out, and uh, didn't work out so well. Uh, And just really, you know, not for lack of trying, just couldn't kind of get things to 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 work. Nothing ever really took off. Where you'd have these glimmers of hope where things would take take off, and then it would c- crash and burn. Well, finally, when he was around fifty years old, he took over a gas station, and at that gas station, he uh, he decided to start making the chicken that his mom taught him to make, and he started selling chicken out of this gas station. Right, Colonel Sanders, you got it. All right, and he now remember he's fifty years old. He's nearing a stage in life where he should be thinking about retirement. He starts selling this chicken out of the gas station, and it kind of takes off. It's a bit of a hit, Um, but he's limited in what he's able to do, and um, he expands, and now the gas station's not enough to, because he had literally, he had one table. People would come in. There was one table, and so people would wait and and, and wait to get his chicken, then he expanded to having six tables, and he bought... Uh, hotel across the street and expanded to 24 tables and things were going pretty well right up until when the hotel burned down and he's like ah oh, right you ever played like shoots and ladders and you're like right back at the beginning of the game sorry oh can't stand that game right oh I was doing so well and I'm right back his whole life was a game of sorry um the gas station burns down and he's like well, what am I going to do now so he decides he's going to franchise this idea, this chicken, the special recipe that he has. And, and so he goes out on the road and he starts selling this, this, this idea. In fact, it wasn't even a, a full franchise. He just said, listen, I'll, any restaurant, existing restaurant, I'll give you my recipe and then you give me four cents per chicken that you sell. And so he actually had, he would go into these kitchens and he would cook the chicken and they would try it and they said, yes, we want this. But it wasn't enough to actually sustain him. He he kept going with the the gas station, kind of rebuilt that, had the restaurant there, but just wasn't really taking off. He was 73 years old. 73 years old. Uh, When it all kind of crashed again, it it hadn't taken off. Now, at 73, he really hadn't even built KFC as we know it. Right? And he... uh, he, at this point, the sales had kind of slumped with these other restaurants. He was living in his car part of the time. He had $105 in his bank account and was, was getting $105 a month, rather, from Social Security and, and had just pretty much lost everything and kind of a go-for-broke move. Went back out on the road to try and sell this idea. Some other people picked up on it, and they launched... KFC as a standalone restaurant, mo- restaurant model. So he's in his late 60s or mid-60s and then into his 70s. In fact, he was 70 years old when he when really sold the, uh, the rights to KFC. So 65, I said 73, it was actually 65 to 73 in that period. And he made about $2 million off the sale of KFC to a franchisee who then spread it around the world. And today KFC is the number two biggest restaurant chain in the world after McDonald's. McDonald's. After McDonald's. By the time he died, I mean, he was making all kinds of money and, and and now his name and his face are really recognizable. In fact, it's funny in South Africa when I was growing up we didn't have McDonald's, but we had KFC. We had KFC and and they are all around the world. You know, you would look at this man's life and go, you know, at some point you should have just got a regular job and just kind of settled down. But he kept going. There's this dream, like, I want to accomplish something with my life. By the time you hit six, 65 years old, right, most people are like, well, how am I going to settle down? And he's still trying to get something off the ground. Don't despise small beginnings. Don't despise small beginnings. See, we live in a world of grandeur. Everything is better and bigger and it's glitzy and it's successful and we are constantly bombarded with images of of people who have made it to the top of their game. Right Tonight we have the Academy Awards taking place. And all of the who's who in the world of entertainment are going to descend on LA and everyone's going to talk about what they're wearing and who they're with and what jewelry they have and how many you know, awards they've received and what movies and what success they've had, right? And we're bombarded with this. And, and ordinary people like you and me, we're ordinary, sorry to break it to you, you're an ordinary person can look at that and go, that's what I need to attain to. In fact, they say for our young people and for our youth, they look at these images and their minds are filled with the idea that that's what I need to achieve, that I need to be famous. I need to have a YouTube channel that generates so much Views and so much income, I, I need to have an, an album that that you know make music that, that that does this, or I need to make it into the entertainment industry. I need to make a lot of money and have all of these things and, and it 's not just for our youth but as adults as well. The lies and, and the draw of, of what 's in front of us constantly can be demoralizing because you can go through your entire life and never achieve those things, and it leaves you dissatisfied with what you do have, what God has blessed you with. Sometimes so busy looking for things that we don't have that we miss the seeds that God is planting, but we don't tend those seeds, we don't nurture those seeds, because I want, I want what he has, I want what she has. Lord, why would you give me just this little bit when they get they have so much more? We say things like what we learn when we're kids. It's not fair. It's not fair. One of the best pieces of parenting advice I ever got was from Dr. James Dobson. I mean, he has a lot of good parenting advice, but he talked about when you have a a few kids, well, if you have two or more kids, don't let fairness be the thing that dictates your parenting it's actually healthy for kids not to get the same stuff. Don't, don't just, be, oh, we, he got it, so he should get one as well. No, it's good for your kids for one to get something that the other doesn't because it builds character in them. There's a little tidbit for you parents in here. Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 paints a real clear picture of this for us, not the parenting but the fairness part in the small beginnings. He says this, talking to the people. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. You've heard... The parable of the mustard seed, I'm sure. That the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. In fact, I'm going to show you a picture of a mustard seed in someone's hands. It's pretty tiny. I was going to, I was going to bring one and say, here's a mustard, but you wouldn't actually see it. So That's a mustard seed. Now, if you Google mustard plant or mustard tree, it's not really a tree in the definition or in the way that we understand. Uh, it is just a large bush. And they grow to be about 10 to 12 feet tall. Um, and if you go to Israel and other places in that region of the world where mustard grows pretty pr- prolifically, it's just everywhere, that these kind of these tall sh- sh- kind of thin plants grow up, but they, they grow together and they kind of create this, this lush, um, dense foliage. And, and it creates a shelter that, that animals, like he says, like, in In the parable here that the birds can come and and find shelter in and find rest in the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds what Jesus is using this picture it's funny as one of the this is one of the verses that people who are detractors or say the word of God isn't true go it's not the it's not the smaller seed there's smaller seeds um, Jesus was painting a picture, and now I'm sure that he knew that there were seeds in the Amazon, right, that were smaller, but they didn't know about the Amazon. They, they knew their context, and he's speaking into their context, which is a great thing, by the way. God will always speak to you in a way that you understand, all right? And someone goes, well, that doesn't make sense. What, it makes sense to me. And as long as it lines up with the Word of God, people just kind of need to get over it, right? All right. It was the smallest seed they knew. And Jesus says, you take this small seed. The kingdom of heaven is like this tiny little seed. Wait a second. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that you're talking about that is so awesome is like a little seed? Really? Yes, it's like this small seed because when you plant That seed as a farmer would, that it grows into something completely other. That out of that tiny seed grows this large plant that's useful. They're actually looking at mustard plants now as one of the ways to generate biofuel because it's got a lot of oil in it. And it's very useful. And any mustard lovers in the house? I like mustard, like good, right? Good stone ground mustard. They're useful. Not just for the oil or, or for the, the seed, but, but for the birds as well. They would come perch in its branches. See, the thing in our lives is we can look at small beginnings and go, yeah, it's not going to amount to anything. Small beginnings and small starts and we go, well, why didn't I get the acorn that that person got? Why did I get the mustard seed? See, Jesus wants us to understand something here. See, because we look at a world that is very surface, and we want to look at the surface stuff and apply it to our lives and go, well, to be like that person, I need to get the stuff that that person got. And Jesus looks at his children and goes, listen, I don't give the same things to all my kids because they're different, and all my kids need different things from me in order to thrive. And so I'm not going to give you something just because I gave it to someone else. Because what worked for them might actually be destructive in your life. It might not be a blessing. And so we start looking for those things and God says, no, wait. See, the lie of the enemy is this, that you would look at your life and think something along these lines. You know, by now I should be further along. I pictured that going differently in my head. When Megan and I got married, we had a plan. It was a good plan. We were going to get married. We were going to finish school. We were going to get good jobs. And then we were going to start a family. (laughs) We were married on December 28, 1996. Micah was born September 12, 1997. God says, I know the plans I have for you. <laughs> we had a plan, and it did not go the way that we wanted it to go. In fact, it stalled my college career a little bit, and I managed to cram four years of college into 10 years. And uh, it <laughs> stretched it out. And, and I, if, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, um, you're missing out. Because I absolutely. So, our goal was we, we knew we wanted four kids. Be even before we got married, but our goal was get married, have children, I mean, get a job, start, start making an income, and then, and, and then start a family, and then we would have our four kids. I graduated from college on Gracie's first birthday. Grace is our fourth child, and I could just, I could sense the pleasure of the Lord in that irony, for years, I looked at my life and thought, I should be further along than I am. And, and I have friends that I graduated from Bible college with who, who went on or are pastoring churches and in other places. There's, in fact, there's one particular friend of mine, and we worked together for a while, and he started Bible college after I did. They got married after we did. They started having children after we did. And within a few years of graduating Bible college, he was, had been asked to take the pastorate of a very large church, and you know, I had a hard time being happy for him. I was a little bitter because I'm like, wait a minute, why does he get why, why does he get that opportunity? And it was any come on, can we be real for a minute? Is that all right? Why does he get that opportunity, and I got to slog it out? I felt a little like Colonel Sanders. Tried this, didn't work, tried that. We had degrees of what we would call success in, the, in this world, but, but for me, looking at my own life, I've always felt like I was behind. And here's the thing, now I'm in my 30s and 40s, coming like a freight train. And I'm thinking, I haven't really achieved the things that I thought I would achieve by this point. The lie, the thinking that you should be further along than you are. See, because God knows where you are and he has you where you are for a reason. Now, there might be decisions along the way that have hampered and hindered, right? Anyone ever made a bad choice? Anyone in the room? All right. We've all made bad decisions. And I know a lot of what hindered me from moving into the things that God had for me and my family was because I was making bonehead choices. I wasn't walking in obedience to who he is and what he was calling me to. And so it was like I kept hitting the reset button and blaming God. But you know he can work with that? That he never gets to a point where he goes, oh no, (laughs) I don't know what we're going to do now. (laughs) Jesus, do you have any ideas like... Barry's just derailed again, and and, that was plan Z, and and I'm out of options. That God never gets to that place, and he's never so frustrated with us. He never gets to a place where he's so frustrated with us, he goes, I'm done with you. He meets us right where we are, and says, okay, let's try again. Let's try again. Let's try again. We read last week in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Paul writes these words, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. There is a key turning point that happens here in Romans chapter 5. Up to this point, Romans uh, and Paul has been talking about us putting our faith in Christ to receive the gift of salvation that he has for us. We just read the word faith, and and we kind of just keep moving through Scripture, and we say, okay, we're talking about faith, talking about faith. But the way that he uses faith here is different. In fact, in this very verse, in these two verses, he talks about you've been justified by faith. It's that moment where you go, God, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redeem you. I'm going to make you a new person. Um, I'm gonna, you're going to have peace with God. That word justified uh, is, is, you ever, like when you're typing a document and you justify and it aligns everything in a straight line. Well, When we're justified God, we are aligned with God. Everything that's out of whack comes into alignment and gives us the opportunity to have peace with God. So that's that faith working to to bring about salvation in our lives. But then Paul changes gears and he changes the focus. And through the rest of chapter 5 and even through the book of Romans, he now talks about faith in regards to our perspective of who God is in our lives. The work that he would want to do. In fact, a good way to say it is that God now becomes the object of our faith. See, before I know Jesus, I I come to him by faith and there's something that draws me to this point where I finally say, yes, I need that. But now that I have a relationship, he now becomes the focal point or the object of my faith. And because of that, Paul says, we now stand in grace. You are standing as a follower of Jesus Christ in a place of grace. And we love grace. We love grace. In fact, it's one of our values for our church. Grace extended. Grace extended, which just is this. I'm going to believe the best. I came to church on Sunday morning, and that person, they kind of looked at me weird. And I don't know what was going on. That person kind of snapped at me, and and they had an attitude. What did I even do to them? And we start just ramping up, right? You start escalating, and you're... Oh, you go home and you can't even remember what the message was, because all you remember is the way that person looked at you. Grace is this. I'm going to believe the best. I believe that something happened this morning that just kind of threw them off. God, I'm going to believe there's something going on in their lives that I'm not aware of, but I need to be praying for, because that was out of character. That's That's grace. We stand in this place of grace where God says, hey... Sometimes you're a knucklehead. But you can't be separated from my love. You make, make bad decisions, but I'm going to continue to love you. And by the way, my plan for you, your life still stands. You're standing in a place of God's grace because of the faith you're putting in Him. The problem is this, church, listen to me, that our faith, is prone to wonder. My faith goes from being fixed on Jesus to my job, or my health care, or my marriage, or my children, or whatever else you need to fill in that blank. And my faith is put in that thing rather than God. And then we wonder what happened to the grace. Why is this becoming so difficult? God's going away. You're taking a step. I talked to last week about the shower. You need to be under the flow, right? God says, "I, I want to work in your life, but you've got to keep your eyes fixed on me. Let me ask you this. What I just read, do you believe this? Do you believe it? Do you believe that you've been justified? Do you believe that you have peace with God? Do you believe that you're standing... Under God's grace. We're talking about the Truth Project, which a class we're going through on Thursday nights, and in that they ask this question. Do you believe that what you believe is really real? Do you believe that what you believe is really real? Because if you do, it will affect the way you live. It must affect the way you live. Because you can't say... Jesus, I love you. I want to serve you with my life. God, I love your word. And then do the opposite of what it says. Because then you don't believe what you believe is really real. And it's not meant to be something condemning. It's just a a, a clear way of looking at our lives and saying, am I lining up? Am I aligned with what God has for me? Not only that, it also affects the way we respond to what happens to us, like we talked about last week. Paul goes on to say, not only so, but I rejoice greatly in my suffering. Because when I'm under God's grace and trouble happens, I just get to see more of His grace. And that's pretty cool. See, the focus is in a different place. But I think most importantly, the the biggest thing with this question, do you believe that what you believe is really real, is this. It affects your ability to trust God. That when I start questioning whether or not what I believe is really real, what it means is that the object of my faith, God himself, comes into question. And thereby, my ability to put my trust in Him to have faith is called into question. Let's go back to the mustard seed, but in another place. Luke 17, 5-6, Jesus, in another place, is talking uh, to His disciples, and He, he, he had just shared a whole lot of things with them that were really mind-blowing for them. Ever, you ever read the Word of God or heard a sermon that you just walk away going, okay, I can't wrap my head around that. Right? Anyone? Okay. They just had one of those moments with Jesus, and this is their response. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. We, we need more faith. And he replied, if you have faith, as small as a mustard seed you can say to this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey now is there any reason to have a mulberry tree uprooted and thrown into the sea no none whatsoever so jesus of course again sarcasm humor jesus, scripture jesus is pretty amazing all right we already knew that but I love this because he goes, Listen, I'm going to use an extreme example. Again, calling on the mustard seed, this tiny little object. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, in other words, you don't have not a lot, just just a bit of faith in who I am and who my father is, that you can say, and there's probably a tree right there, he's like, You could say to that tree, be thrown into the ocean. And it will obey. I don't know, church. I read this, and then I think about my life, and I go, something doesn't line up. Something doesn't line up. Because this week, not, not oh, way back in the past, this week, Megan and I were having a conversation And a place where we need to trust God. And she's looking, we're driving in the car right here in Glendora. And she's looking at me and she's like, what are you saying? What did you just preach last Sunday? Where is your faith? She literally said to me, where is your faith? And I had to stop and go, you're right. Because if I have faith like a mustard seed, the thing that we're talking about, the thing that we're being challenged with in our family, I could speak to that thing, and it would have to come under the submission and the authority of Jesus Christ in my life, and it would have to obey. This is radical. Hello? So do you believe that what you believe is really real? But here's the key my my faith must be in God. He is the object of my faith. My faith is not in my ability to believe. Right? This is this is not what's the the, the movie with the, the, the Polar Express, right? If I just believe I'll see the bell. If I just believe I'll see Santa. My faith is not in my faith. My faith must be rooted and established in who God is. It has to be focused in the right place. I want to I illustrate this in a, just a, in a very simple way. I've got a couple of chairs. One just like what you guys are sitting in. I need a volunteer. Let's change this up a little bit. Joshua, come on up. And your hand just shot right up. That was awesome. (laughs) All right. I want you to do something very simple for me. Would you turn around? Just wave at everyone. All right. Could you just sit in this chair? Just sit down. All right. Let me ask you something. What did it take for Joshua to sit down? It took faith. Faith in what? Faith in the chair, right? Faith in the chair, faith in the fact that I wasn't going to pull it out from under him. Stand up again. Now sit down again. Did it take faith that time? Yeah, it did. Right? It took faith. Now, I want you to stand up and come sit in this chair. Just grab a seat. Faith? Yes. All right, dude, you're awesome. Thank you. Let's say thank you to Joshua. What's the faith in? Well, there's these metal legs, right? And it's a nice sturdy chair. And you're like, we just got these chairs, so I know that they're kind of new and, right, they're, they're sturdy. And, and so I sit down in this chair, and, and it, there's, is there an act of faith? My faith is that this chair will support me. And I'll sit down. Is it a lot of faith? No, it's not. But here's the thing. These are some of the chairs that we have at our house. We got these at Ikea a number of years ago, and uh, they're, they're pretty sturdy, but, but a little while back, one of the chairs started coming apart a little bit. The glue in these braces had come loose, and, and so when you would sit in a chair, it would start kind of rocking back and forth, and every time I sat in the chair, I'm like, oh, I've got to fix this, and that went on for a few months, but here's what I found, I wouldn't just come and sit down, on, sit down in the chair. I started doing this. I started coming up to the chair and I kind of... <laughs> and then I'd very carefully kind of grab a seat. And then I wouldn't move. <laughs> Why? Because I didn't have faith in the fact that this chair would actually support me. See, we all have an object of our faith. But sometimes, because things are falling apart in the past, we look at some of those things and go, I can't put a lot of faith there, or my faith has been kind of rocked in that. I lost a job. I dealt with illness. There's broken relationship. And we look at the stuff of life that becomes rickety and falls apart, and we go, God, I can't put my faith in you anymore because you're not reliable. And God says, "No, no, 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 no." The chair's broken, not me. And we can get distracted and we can look at our lives and go, "God, I trusted you with my life, and I should be further along than I am right than I am right now. What's wrong with you?" God says, nothing wrong with me. In fact, I know what you need better than you do. Now, I fixed the chair. And guess what? I can sit down in any chair in my house now and not worry about if it's going to fall to the ground. God wants to step in and He wants to fix the things in our life. Why? So our faith can be in those things? No, so our faith can be in Him. The author and the perfecter of our faith. But you see how easy it is to get distracted? See, when my my faith is rooted and established in the person of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what rickety things come uh, along. It doesn't matter what falls apart around me. I don't have to go, oh God, you're not reliable. Because he is. See, small faith, the smallest bit of faith leads to huge things in our lives. And Jesus wants us to grasp this. But there is a posturing that needs to take place in our lives. In 1 Kings 19, we find the call of the prophet Elisha. Elijah shows up. A little backstory here. Elijah shows up. It's just right after he has confronted Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And God has moved in a mighty way. Fire from heaven, and they killed all of the false prophets, and it's a crazy story. And then, and then Eli- Elijah kind of should be writing this high, right? Man, look what God did. He goes off and he hides in a cave, and he's sitting there by himself, and he starts. He's like got this Eeyore thing going on, and he's like, God, there's no one else. I'm the only one left. Blah blah blah. And there's some cool stuff that happens in, in the beginning of. Chapter 19 here. God says to him, no, you're not the only one. I've got 7,000 that I've set apart, so get over yourself. But then he says, I need you to go, and I need you to anoint Elisha, and he's going to succeed you. He's going to come after you as a prophet. And so this is what happens, and it's kind of an interesting story. In verse 19, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, he was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left. Okay, that's just weird. Can we just say this? Elisha's plowing. Elijah just comes up and just throws his cloak on him and then leaves. because Elijah was just a bit weird. When you read about his life, man of God honored the Lord just a bit weird sometimes and kind of emotionally unstable. And so he's doing this thing where he comes up to Elisha. It doesn't say that there's any exchange of words. Now, they would have, he would have, Elisha would have known who Elijah was, right, because he had a reputation. But Elijah just walks up and throws his cloak, which was his mantle, it was his, his sign of his authority, just throws it on Elisha and then walks away. Just weird. Elisha left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. Then I will come after you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done for you? Now read that with a sarcasm. What it actually says, what he's really saying is there is, it's not me. This is God moving. I'm not the object of your faith. Go do what you need to do. But don't forget what God is calling you to So Elisha left him and went back. Listen to this. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. See, Elisha, and and there's some conjecture around all the 12 yokes, that's 24 oxen. Did they all belong to Elisha and his family? Or were they just kind of a, 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 share, a co-op where other farmers are coming and they're working together and he just happened to have his 2 We're not sure. But either way, this encounter happens and, and Elijah puts his cloak on Elisha. And Elisha knew what that meant. Really, word, no words were needed. Because sometimes we talk and things it just kind of messes things up, right? No words were needed. He knew what Elijah was saying and he runs after him and he's like, listen, let me... Let me just go do this thing. And Elijah goes, it's not for me to say, man. God's calling you. And you need to be obedient to the voice of God in your life. So Elisha goes back, and he slaughters the animals. And he makes a fire with a yoke that went over their neck. And he cooks the animals, and he gives the meat to the people that were there. Why? Why did he do that? See, Elisha recognized that there was a call in his life and God was saying, I'm calling you to move forward into something new and something different and un- something unknown. And when a guy like Elijah comes up and says, hey, I want you to follow me, part of you is like, kind of cool, this is great. And part of it is, I, he's kind of weird. But it wasn't about Elijah. It was about what God was saying. And so he goes back and he says, I am cutting ties with my past. These oxen and this, these yokes sign, signify my wealth, my ideas of what success looks like, my identity, my source of income and provision. Those oxen, that yoke signified all of that because he was a farmer. He kills the animals, makes a fire with the yoke, cooks the animals, and then blesses the other people. Right? Barbecue. And when that's done, he goes and he follows Elisha. And we know we continue reading about his life. He did amazing things. In fact, when Elijah finally blesses him and he says, I want a double portion. I want a double portion of what God blessed you with. Church, we get stuck in the past. We come to Jesus by faith. He justifies us, makes us right with God. We become to a place where we're at peace with God. And he says, now I'm putting you under this grace. And we're, at God, this is awesome. Best day of my life. But I, I, I have a couple of things that I just want to kind of hang on to. I want to bring along with me. And they become the object of our faith. The Bible says you can't serve two masters. So either God is the object of your faith or he's not. Now remember, Jesus says if you have faith like a mustard seed, it doesn't take a lot. you thrown any trees into the ocean lately? (laughs) What are you trusting God for but trying to fix yourself? See, rooted and established says this, my trust is in God and him alone which means sometimes I have to get out the way. When God says, you're in the way, get out the way. and It happens a lot, like every day, multiple times a day. For me, especially around the area of money. I get all kinds of stressed out. All kinds of stressed out. Okay, well, God, I was presented with an opportunity to, to, to enter into a uh, kind of a part-time job that would have really been very lucrative for me, and I sitting having a conversation, and in the middle of that conversation, God goes, this isn't for you. Did I not say I would take care of you? In fact, the Lord spoke to me very clearly when we came to this church. He says, I need your attention fully on the ministry. Stop being distracted. but you know, God, I want to kind of help you out a little bit. He goes, when you do, you're, you, you become the object of your faith. We need to slaughter some oxen and burn some yokes in our lives. See, God's calling you forward into the things He has for you. Out of the past, out of the brokenness, out of the hurt, out of prosperity, because right, we always think it's the bad things. You know, Jesus called rich people. He, he called people who had really, really good jobs. And he says, Listen, come follow me. We're going to sleep outside. We're not going to make any money. And people are going to despise you. Right? Come and read the New Testament. And they said, Sure. And dropped it and followed him. Why? Because he became the object of their faith. They were rooted and established in the right place. God's calling you forward. He wants to take the little bit of faith that you bring and do huge things through. When I say to you, hold up this card and think of someone, what I'm doing as your pastor, I'm trying to stretch your faith. Do you believe that if you invited someone to church that they might actually show up and give their lives to Jesus Christ? Do you believe it? I pray that you do. Not so we can have a bigger church. I've said this before. My goal is not a bigger church, it's a bigger heaven. The goal is not a bigger church, it's a bigger heaven. And how much do you love the people in your life? Oh, I just don't want it to be uncomfortable. Then God's not being the object of your faith because if you remember, Jesus died on a cross for you. Pray. Pray. This isn't. Please hear me. This is not arm twisting. Maybe heart twisting a little bit. Do you believe that what you believe is really real? I hope you do because it should have changed your life completely. He wants to do amazing things. Just try it. Say, God, give me a bit of faith. I just want to have a little faith like the the apostles. Increase our faith. And then do something with it. You're standing under grace. It's where you've been rooted and established. So moving forward means this in closing. It means you've got to let go. Elisha had to let go of some oxen and a yoke. The disciples let go of nets and tax businesses. Luke was a doctor. He had a medical practice. He let go of it to follow Jesus. We need to let go of our mistakes. We need to let go of our regrets. Oh, so many times in ministry that I've like, if I hadn't done that and that and that, I would have been further along than I am. And God's like, stop wasting your time looking at that. I forgot about it. You you need to as well. That he can do more in one year of our lives than we can do in 80. Well, I'm halfway through. I'm three-quarters. I'm turning 50. I'm turning... God's like, I don't care. Look at Caleb, 80 years old. He's like, come on. What else are we going to do for the kingdom? We've got to let go of those regrets. We've got to let go of the hurts. Now, I'm not saying just get over it. You know, as a church, if you've been here for any amount of time, that we are committed to helping you thrive, which means getting healthy. And sometimes things that are broken and hurting need care to get better. So, this is not a suck it up kind of thing. But, man, once God starts moving in your life, let it go. Let go of feeling inadequate. Because that's not the way that God looks at you. He says, you're, Ephesians 2, he says, you're his masterpiece, created in Christ to do awesome things. You're not inadequate. You're all he says that you are. Stop comparing yourself to other people. We need to let go of comparisons, church. Well, I'm not like. Listen, I don't sing like Jacques. I just don't. It will never, ever, ever, ever happen. You know what I do every Sunday? When Jacques is leading or Jamie is leading or Jesse is leading? When Maria, oh my goodness, Maria, that's, oh, that song just, right? Come on. I stand up here and I just go, God, thank you that you gave them that gift that I don't have. I'm so thankful that they have it because it's a blessing to me. But how lame would it be if every Sunday I was like, God, I wish you made me sing like Jacques. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I don't need to sing like Jacques. Stop comparing yourself. Let go of the comparisons. Maybe the comparing was done for you. Maybe it sounded like this. Hey, if only you could be more like. And you've hung on to that your whole life, and it has crippled and disabled you. God says, let go of that. Kill the oxen, burn the yoke, have a barbecue, and move on. I want to close for years. For years. I bemoaned the fact in ministry that I didn't have a mentor. There was a few guys that I thought were gonna pan out. I saw my good friends all had mentors, and there were, you know, they'd spend time talking and reading books and praying for each other. And every time I thought I was getting a guy in my life that would help groom me and I thought that's just the key, right? That's the key. I need a mentor, and then I'll it'll take off. Every time it seemed like it was going to happen, I would get let down and disappointed and get honestly kind of angry, I discovered that in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And I remember praying, it was after we stepped down from pastoring up in Anchorage, and I was just kind of crying out to God, not even in prayer, just more frustration, more complaining. God if you just brought me a mentor, if I just had someone that invested in my life, I wouldn't be where I am now. And as clear as I've ever heard the voice of God in my life, he said these words to me, am I not enough? Am I not enough that you need some human person to take the place of me? Am I not the object of your faith? And can I tell you, it changed my life because I realize I don't need some fallible broken person to tell me what to do because it will probably be wrong that I have access direct access to God himself through Jesus Christ and I stand in a position of grace and Jesus says I will download everything you need into your heart and life that you, that you need to accomplish my purposes for you And since that day till now, my life has become one barbecue after another. As I am slaughtering things and saying, God, no more. This doesn't have a place in my life anymore. That anger, that hurt, that pain, that abuse, that whatever it is, that fear, it doesn't have a place. And so I have to have a barbecue. I'm barbecuing all the time. God, put it to death. I want you to be the object of my faith. Can we stand together as the worship team comes forward? Can I ask you, church, this morning, where are you rooted and established? Who or what is the object of your faith? Is it you? Is it someone else? Is it your marriage? Is it your work? Is it your education? Is it your appearance? Is it your bank account? Is it media and the world around us? Or is it Jesus Christ? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I want to give an invitation this morning. Paul Paul talked about that first step of faith, coming to salvation. Maybe you're in this place today and, and you've never actually taken that first step. You've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. I want to miss an opportunity this morning, miss this moment to give you a chance to say yes. It's as simple as you crying out to him. As as simple as it is for me to talk to you right now, for you to say, Lord, I want you to be my savior. I put my faith in you. But I want you to do this as well, with every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to agree with you. I want to agree with you. I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I want to agree with you in the decision you're making. If that's you, if you've never said yes to Jesus and put your faith in him, and you'd like to do that this morning, would you go ahead and just raise your hand? Just raise raise it nice and high so I can see it and I can agree with you. Anyone here this morning? Amen. question as I've been speaking this morning what has the Holy Spirit been speaking to you what has he highlighted in your life that he's saying it's time to let go it's time to let go it's time to shift the focus of your attention the focus of your faith and put it in the right place If God has shown you something, if he's spoken something to you, same way, this is between you and the Lord, but heads bowed and eyes closed, just, but I want to agree with you. You don't have to tell me even what it is. That's that's not the point. God knows. But if that's you today and you say, Pastor Barry, I've got to have barbecue this week. There's some things that need to be Put to death things that need to be left behind. If that's you, just raise your hand so I can agree with you as well. All over this place, hands going up. Keep those hands raised. In fact, just raise the other hand as well. And Father, God, I ask this morning, as we even lift our hands in a sign of surrender, God, I think of a baby being asked to be picked up by his mom or dad for that security and that safety. God, we trust you this morning. We surrender the things in our lives that don't belong, that distract us from your purpose and your plans for our lives. And so for these hands that are raised, and for everyone else as well, God, I ask that you would bring your strength. Holy Spirit, empower us in our inner being, as Paul says, to be able to cut the ties with the things that don't belong that we would sacrifice and get rid of them, leave them in the past, and move into the call that you have for every one of us. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've closed our time this morning with a final worship song. Would you cry out to the Lord this morning? Would you praise his name as we conclude our service?